So today I get the great privilege of continuing on our series uh, through David today and uh, picking up where Craig left off last week. But as we get into that, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather around your word and as your scriptures, as we listen to the story of David, would you make these words come alive to us? Would you help us to see ourselves and to see you in a new light? That we might know your glory more fully and understand our need for you more deeply. In your name we pray, amen. Today we're continuing on our story of David. If you want to follow along, we'll be working through Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Where Craig left us last week, we, uh, we left at David at the high point of his career. If you remember, God had made this extravagant, uh, amazing promise to David, saying, David, your line will continue forever. And through your line, I will establish a kingdom that will never end. And then beyond that, David had begun to gain more and more power, and there became more peace in the land. And so David was able to be gracious to Jonathan's last remaining son and show him the amazing grace that Jonathan's son did not deserve. But David said, look, you can come and eat at my table. So today we find David at the height, at the peak of his power, basking in the promises and the blessings and the glory of God. And so we come to David who is now in Jerusalem. He sits in military victory. The last two kingdoms of the Syrians have just been subdued. And now in the area around him, there remains one small kingdom of the Ammonites that are still trying to fight back against Israel's growth. And this kingdom of Ammonites only have one small city of Rabbath left. And so David, seeing how Joab, his chief general, has done so well in the past at managing the campaigns, Joab was chiefly responsible for bringing the Syrians into submission. He looks at Joab and says, Joab, go finish us off. It's going to be a siege. It's going to be long, hard work. Joab, would you go and take this last remaining city, and then we can have peace in the land. And so we come to David, who's in Jerusalem. And though there's fighting on the frontiers, in Jerusalem it is calm, peaceful, and quiet. David, thinking over the blessings and the goodness that God has given to him, goes up to the roof of his palace one evening. The cool spring air is blowing through and Jerusalem is calm and peaceful. And David walks around the ramparts of his palace, surveying the city and all that God has given to him. And as he looks around the city and as he looks into the houses and into the courtyards, his his eyes spot something. Off in the distance, he can see a woman bathing. Scripture tells us she's very beautiful. David's eye is caught by her. So he sends for one of his servants and says, You there, who, who is this woman? Who is she? The servant inquires, and he comes back to David and says, David, this is, um, this is Bathsheba the wife of Uriah. And now at the mention of Uriah, David very likely could have said, 
oh, cool, and kept walking and returned home. He should have given pause. He knew Uriah. Uriah would have been one of David's top 30 warriors. He would have been in his royal guard. He would have been one of the close confidants that David would have fought with, bled with, campaigned with. Uriah, his faithful friend and servant who had been with him through the campaigns in the desert. But David, rather than pausing, David shows the same characteristics we've seen in him so far. David ever impulsive acts. The same David who grabbed up his war party ready to go kill Nabal. The same David who moved forward to cut off a piece of Saul's cloak. The David who is decisive decides. And he tells his servant, go, bring her. And so the servants do just that. They go and they bring Bathsheba. Bring her into the palace beyond through the temple courts through the palace courts, takes her up. David meets with Bathsheba. And David sleeps with her. Then once the deed is done, Bathsheba returns home. And David was probably thinking, ah, did what I need to do, got it out of my system, no one's ever going to know the difference until about four weeks later, a message comes back from Bathsheba. See, when she was bathing, she wasn't just bathing for just her own personal hygiene, she had actually just finished her period. And according to temple purity laws, after a week of her period, then she had to go and ceremonially wash and cleanse herself. So that meant when David saw her, she was at the height of her fertility. And so when David had slept with her, she wrote to him saying, David, I'm pregnant. And David's heart begins to beat. See, he has a problem now. David, who was in control, David, who was so much in control that at a whim, he could call out a woman from the city and say to his servants, bring her to me. David, who is the king at the height of his power, can have any woman he wants and picked the woman he wanted and slept with her, and he thought he could just have his way. But now David is out of control. With this one phrase, David, I'm pregnant. David's control is evaporating, and he's realized there's something now that is beyond his control, and so David begins to think, okay, I can fix this. I can fix this. I can, I can sort this out. It'll make it better. No one will have to know. I can do something. I can hide. And so David calls his servants and says, guys, I need you to call Uriah back from the front. I know he's at the siege of Rabbath, but call him back. And so his servants go and do that. And so Uriah comes back from the siege and enters into David's courts. And David friendly, jovial. He knows Uriah, so he puts a big smile on his face, opens up his arms and embraces Uriah and says, Uriah, my brother, how are you? He holds him close and asks him how the war is going. Uriah reports back, well, it's going well, David. Still working on the siege. Still little by little taking through and they have a good evening together and they have a discussion and Uriah at some point must be wondering, why am I back giving a message 
on a siege. Surely David will know when we break through, we will call him so that he can have the victory. But he continues on. At the end of the discussion, David says, Uriah, it's good to see you, but you've been fighting. You've been out in the fields. Uriah, go home. Go home to your wife. Go home and rest. I'm, I'm looking out for you, Uriah. I've got a blessing for you. Go home and be with your wife. Comfort yourself before you go back out to the travesties of war. And so David sends Uriah off thinking, I fixed it. It's done. Except for a problem comes up. Uriah, rather than going back home and being with Bathsheba, instead goes to the entrance of the palace where all the temple guards are, and he spends the night at David's palace and refuses to go home. Now David's servants notify him of this because David's servants now realize they can kind of get an inkling of what David's trying to do. And so they say to David, David, um, Uriah, didn't, Uriah didn't go home last night. And David says, what? What, what happened? And they say, David, he, um, he stayed at the entrance of your palace and he stayed with the other king's guard who were there and you wonder if David's heart began to race a little bit. See, Uriah would have known the palace guards. Uriah would have been acquainted with the king's ways and how the kings worked and these palace guards would have been able to see David send out for a woman, for Bathsheba. He would have been, these palace guards would have seen Bathsheba come through the entrance, go up and be with David and then leave the following night and go back. These palace guards would have been able to see the servants going back and forth as Bathsheba sends the notification to David, David, I'm pregnant, and you can't help but wonder whether David's heart began to pick up a little bit. Saying he spent the night with who? With them? And David's heart begins to beat a little bit faster, and David says, it's okay. I can fix this. I can fix this. It's okay. I know how to, I know how to do this. And so David goes, and he finds Uriah, and he says, Uriah, why didn't, you go, why didn't you go home last night? His heart's beating. What's Uriah going to say? Does Uriah know? Does he know what's happened? Does he know, does he know what I've done? Uriah looks at David and says, David, my Lord Joab and all of Israel and all of Judah and the Ark of the Covenant are all out staying in fields, living in tents, surviving on war rations and dried meat with the little that they have doing a long drawn out campaign. David, they're all there. How can I be here in comfort? How can I eat? How can I drink? How can I go and be with my wife when the rest of my people are out in tents? And you wonder whether David's heart began to pick up a little bit. David wonders, does he know? He must know. Was that an insult? Was he insulting me for being here in Jerusalem when I could have been out there with them fighting? Does he know? He must know. I've got to do something. So David pushes, presses him again and said, David, or Uriah, stay a couple more days. Don't go back to the front yet. I want to bless you. I want to be gracious to you. Stay here and go be with your wife. But that night, Uriah stays again at the entrance to the palace. David's now thinking, it's okay. I can fix this. I can fix this. I can make this better. I can, get, I can set it right. 
I know what I can do. So David organizes a grand banquet. And he, he invites Uriah and says, Uriah, Uriah, come dine with me. Come eat at my table. And so Uriah comes. And David makes sure that as soon as Uriah is sat down, there is a servant who is attending to Uriah's every need. And he makes sure that whenever Uriah takes a drink from a cup, there's a servant there to refill it immediately afterwards. And David, the man's man, the warrior who spent time and time around a campfire, cajoles him and gets him in good spirits and makes Uriah feast and enjoy himself. And before the night is done, Uriah is drunk. But David is not. David is still as cool, as calm, as clear-headed as possible because he's thinking, I can fix this, I can fix this, I can fix this. So Uriah is drunk and surely thinks, I've got it now. Or David thinks, I've sorted it now. He's drunk, he'll go home to his wife. Yet again, it doesn't happen that way. Uriah, even in a drunken state, returns to the entrance to the palace and sleeps there with the palace guards. And David suddenly realizes that no amount of talking to him, no amount of getting him to drink, nothing will change Uriah's state now. And so David thinks, I've got to fix this. I can fix this. So David brings a servant and he says, I need to write a letter to Joab. And so he writes to Joab and says, Joab, I'm sending you Uriah and I need you to put him out on the front lines. Put Uriah out where the enemy's fighters are fiercest. And when the fighting gets going and when, when they begin to attack one another, I need you with, to, to withdraw our troops. Joab, would you do this for me? And now Joab will do this because throughout the course of the story, if you've been following it, you know that Joab's David's go-to guy for any of the wet work that needs to be done. Anyone who needs to be killed or put down, Joab's the one who's going to sort it out. And so then David sends Uriah in the greatest feat of irony, Uriah returns to the battlefield holding his own death warrant. And so he returns to the siege on Rabbath and he hands the letter to Joab. And Joab reads it. So then, and then Joab acts. The next day, Joab sends Uriah and a crew of people close to the city and manages to lure out the, the, the fighters from within the city of Rabbath. They come in a big charge forward to attack the Israelite army and David tells Uriah and his team, go forward, press forward on the attack, ever forward. And Uriah, this fierce, fierce fighter begins to go forward and he begins to fight and fight and fight and God gives them Victory, and they begin to move forward, and the enemy is getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, and they push back and push back and push back until before you know it, the enemy is trapped between their own city gates, and Uriah and his front team are pressing them in. And Joab says, Uriah, press on the attack. Keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. So Uriah presses forward. But by pushing forward near the city gates, they they did something any military general knows you should not do. They came within range of the archers and the stone throwers and the defenses of the city. And Joab knows this, but he says, keep going forward anyway. And so they go and they fight 
and Uriah and a whole platoon of soldiers are struck down. Not just Uriah, but a whole platoon of other sons, fathers, and brothers now die in a failed military strategy, all for the point of covering up one thing. David says, I can fix this. And so the military battle is a failure. The ploy to lead the armies out and be able to break through into the city and end the siege fails because they lose and they have massive casualties on the Israelite side. And so Joab now has to write back to David and inform him of how the campaign is going. And he has to write to David and say, messenger, go and tell David what has happened. Go and inform him of the fight that we have had. Let him know of how we pressed into the city and were pushed back by the defenses. And he tells his servant, now be careful because we know David and we've seen David's reactions time and time again. He's going to get bad news. David will not be happy. When you tell him we pressed into the city and received massive casualties, David's very likely to get upset. He's going to get irate and he's going to say to you, how could you have gone forward that close to the city? He would have said, Joab, we fought before. Joab, you should know better than that. We fought in other cities. We fought in other sieges. You would know that if you get close to the entranceway to the palace and to the courts, these defenders are going to come and kill you. Why would you have done it? And Joab says, when David gets angry like this, you just need to tell him, also, David, your servant Uriah also is dead. And so the servant returns back to David. And he tells David all that has happened. And the servant, a little bit wondering and anticipating David's negative reaction, goes through it really quickly. He sits there nervously and says, Oh, uh, David, um, we've uh, received bad news from the battlefield. We, we pressed in on the city. And um, when we pressed in on the city, we got to the, close to the city walls. And we received massive casualties. And, and it was a defeat. And... You know, it may be a little while longer yet before we can do the siege. Oh, but also, but David, Uriah's dead. And David listens and takes it all in. And rather than being angry or, or upset, this, this serene calm comes over him. He takes a deep breath. He looks at the servant and says, look, these things happen. In war, the sword will come for one just as it comes for another. You never know when it might be your time. Don't be dismayed. Don't, don't be disheartened. It's okay. Don't let what has happened be seen as evil in your sight. This is just war. And so the messenger goes back and tells the story to Joab, and Joab knows exactly what has happened, and Joab go, continues on with what Joab's always done. Word gets out to Bathsheba. Her husband is dead. And the story leaves us with a few statements. It leaves us with saying, Bathsheba grieved and mourned the loss of her husband. David encouraged his soldiers saying, don't think what happened is evil. Don't let it bother you. 
These things happen. These things happen. These things happen. And David's thought, I fixed it. It's done. So David sends for Bathsheba, and when her mourning time is over, she becomes his wife. And David thinks, I did it. I'm done. I'm safe. It's all taken care of. And the story finishes with this one phrase, but God saw what David did. And it was evil in his sight. For David had sinned against the Lord. It's a confronting story. As we look at David, who's been often the symbol of hope and, you know, the symbol of, you know, he was the man after God's own heart. And now David, at the peak of his command, at the, at the peak of his reign, suddenly does this. David, who was strong and mighty, you hardly recognize him by the end of the story. And the truth is that the story confronts us with a very painful and difficult reality, which is the reality of sin and evil in our world. Now, truthfully, in the past, the church hasn't always talked about sin in the best way. We haven't always dealt with it um, in ways that are helpful to people. Often sin has been used as a means to control people. We use it to shame those who we don't like. We've used it as a, a line to define who's in and who's out. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. We're the saints, they're the sinners. Or we've often so understood sin only in a legal term where it's you've done something against God's holy law and now God is angry with you. And that's true. But when our whole understanding of sin is based on these things, we miss the key factor of what the, the story tries to teach us. And it's that sin is a disease. And we all can catch it. And we all have caught it. This story shows sin in its most amazing forms. It shows it on both the big and the small stage. See, it talks about huge systemic sin. David, the king of Israel, uses his political power to take what he wants, even if it belongs to someone else, and then uses his political clout to kill his enemies who might speak up against him, and there's nothing that people can do against it because he's the king. We see this same dynamic all over our world today. You have but to look on the global stage and you see the same thing of political leaders who are able to use their power for their own personal gain. We see war-ravaged Syria. We see refugees fleeing the country as superpowers drop bombs over this small little nation, each trying to push their own way. Massive systemic sin, systemic evil played out on the world stage. But the most confronting thing about the story is that we realize the same thing that causes huge systemic evil in the world that allows human trafficking to prosper, that allows for more slaves to be alive today than ever before. All these big things that we can look out in the world and say, that is awful. This story gives us pause because this story says that the same thing that causes that is also in me. It's in you and it's in me. 
And you can see that with David. This one sin twisted and turned him and this disease tore him apart. David, who we knew was honest, who was respectable, who um, fought for the Lord's interest and always turned things back to the Lord. David, who we remember being strong and, and trustworthy. By the end of the story, you look at the effects of sin and you hardly recognize the same man. Because sin is a disease that tears us apart from the inside. It takes the good that God has made and it corrupts it. It tears it apart into pieces. We break apart and we become less human. David did that. You see, the more he tried to cover up his sin, the more he sinned. And the more David sinned and tried to cover up his sin, the more he became a person we hardly recognize. He was no longer the man God had made him to be, but some twisted, different hardly recognizable form. It's, what, it's the effect that sin has on us. And that's why God is so fierce and so strong on sin. Not because he just simply has these arbitrary rules that he doesn't want us to break. Like he's sitting there with a rule book waiting, be like, oh, he broke that one, he broke that one, he broke that one. God doesn't want us to sin and he's so strong against it because he sees the effects that it has upon us. Sin destroys us individually, it destroys us communally, it takes apart our relationships. And the difficulty is, is that we try so hard to fix it. David tried so hard to fix it. That one mistake he tried to tweak and he tried to change and he tried to alter. But the message of the story is that no matter what David tried, he couldn't fix it. David can't just make this one better. And if David can't just fix it, neither can we. You and I, each and every one of us, wrestle with sin and evil in our lives. Who of us here, when they found they did a mistake, how often and how easy it is when you notice, if you're at work, if you're a nurse and you gave you wrote down the wrong dosage of what you need to give to a patient, or your accountant, you put the numbers in the wrong place, or you're a builder, and you took a shortcut here, and you didn't mean to, you made a mistake, you did something wrong. How many for us, the first reaction is, I can fix this. It's okay. No one will have to know. I'm a good, I can, I can make this better. And so we, we fudge the numbers a little bit. We go back and rewrite our notes. We go back and cover up our mistakes so that when the boss comes by, he, he won't notice them. He won't see what we've done because all of us have this deep drive to want to be good. We want to be perfect. We want, we want people to like us. We want to be seen as a good person. We want to understand ourselves as a good person. And that's true, but the truth is, if David couldn't fix it, neither can we. This disease that we all have just constantly works within us. Paul writes about it saying, the good I want to do, I, I don't do. And instead, the evil I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. And no matter how much I try to do the good, instead I do the evil. How can I move forward? How can I find freedom from this disease, from this sickness? I don't want to be torn apart because no matter how much I try, every time I try to put things back together, if I try to add the pieces back in, it, it keeps falling apart. But here's the beautiful message of the Christian faith and of the gospel. 
and that David should have understood from the beginning, is that with God, we just admit that we can't fix it. Calling on Jesus is saying, I, I don't have it all together. And no matter how much I try to put it all together, I can't. I've tried my own way. I've tried, I tried fixing it. I tried putting a different spin on it. I've tried being a better person. I've tried, I've tried doing things differently. I've tried everything in my power to make myself, to make myself better. But I can't fix it. And the beauty of the gospel is taking what we have, these broken pieces of ourselves, the ways we still fail, the ways we still fall, the ways we still mess up so easily, and we take it and we lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, make me whole. Jesus, I want your life to transform mine because I can't transform it on my own. The great message of the gospel is stop trying. Stop trying to put on this face of this is who I am. Stop trying to pretend to be the perfect person. Stop trying to always be the one who's got it all together because we know we aren't. We're human and we're sick. But we can call on someone who is able to take the broken shatters of who we are and transform them into something miraculous. Paul writes in Corinthians, but we have treasures in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Because at the end of the day, it wasn't you or me who was meant to be the perfect person who was meant to have it all together. The message of the gospel is that through our shattered, flaking, cracked selves, God will dwell within us. And in spite of our humanity, God will use us to do miraculous and amazing things in the world. And when God has his way and reaches people and changes things, we can all say, guys, it wasn't me because I'm, I'm pretty broken. But that's how good our God is, is that he can use a broken person like you or me, and he can do the impossible. All we have to do is hold out our hands and say, Jesus, take this. Let's pray. God, it is so easy to try and force our own way on things. And Lord, we are all so aware of how easily we mess things up. God, I know how, how quick it is for me to turn from the good that you have called me to and instead turn to this destructive evil that destroys me and destroys my relationships and destroys others. It's so easy, and I wish it weren't, but God, I turn to it so quick, so often sometimes. That's why I need you, Jesus. That is why we need you, Jesus. We need you to be what we can't be. We need your life to fill us. We need your strength to fill ours. We need your spirit to breathe life into ours because you are our life, our light, and our salvation. So Lord, with open hands, we say, this is who we are. We don't have it all together. 
We don't get it right all the time. But we believe in you, Jesus, a Savior who is able to raise things from the dead, breathe new life into bones that are dry and weary, and is able to put surpassing glory into these jars of clay that your glory might be fulfilled. Amen.